Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, friends, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary. And every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Hey, you want a pardon? Yeah, just ask uh, Kim Kardashian, maybe, or, um, I don't know, Sylvester Stallone. Whatever you do, don't ask the Justice Department. Donald Trump doesn't pay any attention to them. What do you say, everybody? Hello, hello, hello. Great to see you. You realize it's a Thursday. Yep, Thursday, June 7, uh, 2008. Great to see you today, and thank you for uh, climbing on board. Thank you for joining us. The Bill Press Show as we start out and boom out to you from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, to wherever you are in this great land, the United States of America. We are there right alongside of you online, on television, and on radio with all the news of the day and a great lineup of guests to help us through it. Um, Senator, uh, Congressman, not Senator yet, <laughs> Congressman John Garamendi. From uh, California, California's third congressional district, will be here in studio with us to run us through some of the big primary news from uh, California. Stu Eisenstadt, who was once domestic policy advisor for uh, the uh, for President Jimmy Carter, four years uh, in the White House, out with a uh, very important new book about the Carter presidency, perhaps one of the most underrated presidencies of all time. Uh, He'll be here to tell us uh, all about uh, what Jimmy is up to. And then Matt Fuller. I know we promised him yesterday, but he will be here today. (laughs) Damn it, uh, he better be. From HuffPost. He better be. (laughs) To run us through all the latest uh, on the congressional side. So a lot's coming up. A lot you're going to want to talk about. Don't forget, you know how to do it. We want to hear from you on Twitter. At BP Show. At BP Show. Send us your comments. But first... This is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories making news, but there was no hockey last night, no Stanley Cup playoffs, but there were the NBA Finals. The Warriors and the Cavaliers facing off yet again. How did it turn out? Durant standing on the logo, waves Curry away. He's got Rodney Hood guarding him. Gets Iguodala to the right side, pulls up downtown. Durant for three. Wow! 
way downtown. He doubles the Warriors' advantage to 106 to 100. It's a playoff career high, 43 points for Kevin Durant. Whoa. 106-100 Warriors and a timeout for Cleveland. That was pretty oh, much the man. dagger, the nail in the coffin. Kevin Durant Whoa. scoring 43 friggin' points God. last night. Unbelievable. Uh, yeah. So what's the, what's the uh, lineup now? Was so Golden State Warriors are up three games to nothing. They just oh, need to man. win one more. I mean, this, the Cavs are better than that. Well, the Warriors are really a juggernaut. They really are. And there's something to be said about how the they have stacked their team because yeah, it's yeah, a machine. It's, it's yeah. a, it is a machine. And LeBron James <laughs> is the best player in the world, but he, he, he's got to have some help. So... Uh, it looks like the Warriors might just sweep this whole series, uh, and the Cavaliers might not even get a single win in the NBA yeah. Finals. Oh. Yeah. Mm. I feel like I do this story often, but there is an oldest person in the world. She lives in Russia. Oh. She is 129 years get old. Out. She just celebrated her 129th birthday. You can't be 129. Her name is Koku Istambulova, and she says, <laughs> this is kind of sad. Yeah. She says that she's never lived a happy day in her life. Whoa. And she says. Oh, God. She wishes that she had died young. (laughs) She says, quote, it's God's will for me to be. It's God's will for me to live to be this old. And I consider it a punishment instead of a gift. Oh, Oh no. It's not funny, but it's also kind of like most of these people are like, I had a good life. I, yeah, I lived this yeah. long because I, you know, did shots of whiskey and ate fried food. She's just, she's miserable. She's spent 129 miserable years on this planet. Well, you know, they, they ought to do something nice for her. So, like, I know. Her next few years, you know, would be, <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Give her a little villa on the Riviera or something. <laughs> This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, she's back. Melania showed up yesterday. What do you know? We have a first lady after all. (laughs) Hello, everybody, despite all the speculation. And, of course, Donald Trump took advantage of that. Hello, hello, hello on a Thursday. It's a big Thursday, June 7. How about it? So good to see you today. Welcome. Welcome to the Bill Press Show. It's uh, great to have you with us wherever you happen to be. On the planet, all around the world, and here in the United States of America, particularly coast to coast, we are reaching out to you with all the news of the day uh, and our take on the news of the day from a very progressive point of view. Uh, good, to, good to see you. Good to have you with us as we boom out to you online, of course, on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And uh, you know you must have signed up for the podcast from now by now because... We remind you uh, every day. That's what you got to do. Wherever you go to your podcast, and we advise BillPressShow.com as one good place. Uh, go, the, go, go there. Hear our podcast all throughout the rest of the day. We'll send you good stuff out for the weekend as well, uh, which you only get if you signed up for the podcast. Also, we're looking at you on Free Speech TV. Great to see you on Free Speech again and on the radio. On the great WCPT out in the greater Chicago area, driving to work this morning. We're right there alongside of you 
and uh, statewide in Indiana on Indiana Talks. Boy, there is so much news today. Uh, great lineup of guests. Senator John, uh, keep calling him that, Congressman John Caramendi, California's 3rd Congressional District, will be here uh, in studio with us, as well as the former domestic policy advisor for, uh, yes, President Jimmy Carter, uh, a uh, considered the best one-term president ever in the history of the country. Sue Eisenstadt will tell us all about the legacy of uh, Jimmy Carter. Uh, got a new great new book out about it. Uh, and then uh, Matt Fuller from HuffPost uh, to bring us up to date on Congress and a big meeting today that Paul Ryan has called to try to prevent uh, the discharge position on the Dreamers from taking effect. It looks like they need maybe just two or three more signatures Paul Ryan doesn't want that to happen. Uh, Matt Fuller will uh, tell us all about it, and you will tell us what you think about the news of the day, of course, by sending us your comments on Twitter, at BP Show. Boy, it is uh, the lead story in the New York Times and the Washington Post today and lead story around the country that the Democratic Party, the resistance, scored big time, big time, not just in California, but around the country in the primaries um, yesterday, uh, Tuesday, in fact, the Democrats need to pick up 23 seats, of course, to win the House. Uh, there are 10 Republican seats, that's almost half of what they need, that voted for Hillary Clinton, where Democrats now have a strong, strong candidate in 10 of those seats, thanks to the primaries on Tuesday. A lot of them are women. Uh, but remember, there was this whole fear, particularly in California, because of their jungle primary, that the opportunities in California were going to be lost because there were too many Democrats running and Democrats were just stepping all over themselves. I never bought into that theory. But, you know, everybody that we had in here, all of our political experts uh, raised it. And I knew it was a possibility, but it didn't work. Democrats were smarter than that. Uh, they held out. And in every one of those districts, like in California, for example, here, I uh, don't have all the names yet because not not all the races have been decided. They know there will be a Democrat. They're not sure which Democrat it is yet till they count all the absentees. But in California alone, California 10, 21, 22, 25, 39, 45, 48, and 49 Democrats have a contender up against a Republican. Wow. And these are districts that Democrats didn't even bother fielding a candidate before. I mean, they just sort of gave them up because there were such deep red districts. But like one of them, famously, uh, 40, California 48, which is Dana Rohrbacher, who should be bounced out of there. He's Looney Tunes. Uh, and talk about Russian connection. Yeah, yeah, talk about Russian yeah. collusion. I mean, he makes a point of praising Vladimir Putin and praising Russia and bragging about his Russian connections. Uh, at any rate, uh, Dana Rohrbacher's district, Orange County, California, was carried by Hillary Clinton the last time around. So that's certainly a, pe a seat that Democrats can pick up, and they're going to have a strong Democratic contender uh, up against uh, Dana Rohrbacher. So overall, and it's true, it's true in Iowa, true in New Jersey, true in Pennsylvania, several really key seats where Democrats have fielded now a strong candidate, which makes it uh, even— uh, again, more likely that this, uh, no matter what Donald Trump says, well, yeah. the blue wave 
is building. Yeah, wait. You, I, you, I, building. I think you have this totally wrong because oh, I'm correct. reading from the president's Twitter oh, yes. feed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he had several comments about the elections. It's going to be a red wave, he says. Yeah. Yeah, he says it's going to be a red wave. He uh, he said uh, many more Republican voters showed up yesterday than the fake news media thought possible. The political <laughs> pundits just don't get what's going on out there, or they do get it but refuse to report the facts. Remember, Dems are high tax, high crime, easy to beat. And he also sent out a, a special yeah. shout out to your buddy Dana Rohrbacher and John Cox and John Cox, Both- right? Both in California. Uh, so the Republicans did succeed in getting a Republican in the final in California for governor, not for Senate. There will not be no Republican candidate for Senate, but the John Cox, Trump-backed Republican. There is absolutely no way, no way John Cox can win that governor's race. Number one, Gavin Newsom's a great guy. He's a great candidate. Uh, and um, John Cox is a perennial loser, as I've told you several times. Uh, moved to California from Illinois after losing three times in Illinois. Uh, the Republican Party in California is in third place <laughs> behind uh, the Democratic Party and independents, then come Republicans. And John Cox, who is Mr. Trump, he is a Trumper, 100%. Uh, Donald Trump's popularity is about mm, maybe in the low 20s in California. <laughs> yeah, if there's one place that is yeah, <laughs> yeah, Trump. Don't even show your face, right? And but John Cox has decided he's going to be all, all things Trump and uh, and win that. So, uh, great news on the primaries across the board. Uh, I did want to I did want to take just a minute to tell you those of you who were with us. I think it was Tuesday morning we had the guy in from Fair Vote. I think that's right. Maybe yeah. Monday or Tuesday, yeah. Rich Rob Ritchie, yeah. Uh, who's president of this fair vote, and we wanted to come in to talk about this rank choice voting. I hope some of you saw that uh, or heard that because it was new to me, and I wanted to know what it was all about. And it was important because it was on the ballot in San Francisco has adopted this rank choice voting. And the way it works, if you were listening or if not, right, is that you don't just vote for one guy. Under ranked choice voting, you put you give them you vote for your first choice, and then you indicate who your second or third choice are going to be. And that was on the ballot in San Francisco. That's the way it was. It's in San Francisco for the mayor's race. And when I was out there a couple of weeks ago uh, on my book tour for From the Left book plug, um, I, I had a little book party, and Mark Leno, a friend of mine who's running for mayor of San Francisco, came to the party and was explaining to me why he thought he really had a shot because of ranked choice voting. And the more he explained it, the dizzier I got. I just couldn't understand it. And I said, Mark, this is a nutty system, you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, then Rob Ritchie came in the other day and explained it to us, this one, two, three. By the way, if you if you haven't seen it or heard it, it's on our YouTube channel, yeah, youtube.com yeah. slash the Just watch it. It is fascinating. Or, or listen to the podcast because uh, it's in there. And, and this is a way that you can... You can show your preferences if your person, your guy or girl, doesn't win, which I think does. The more I think about it, the more I heard, the more I think it makes sense. Well, here's what happened to San Francisco. London Breed was the front runner. Uh, she's great, African-American woman, very progressive. And she ends up, the first count, she's got 36%. Mark Leno, 26%. And then a woman named Judy Kim is down at Third, third, third place, but ten points, thirty-six to twenty-six. 
Well, Mark Leno and Judy Kim had made a little plan, and they given the ranked choice voting. So whenever Mark Leno went out to and talked to groups, he would say, I want your vote. But if I'm not your first choice, make me your second choice. If Judy Kim is your first choice, make me your second choice. And Judy Kim, everywhere she went, she said, I want your vote. But if I'm not your first choice, make me your second choice. And if I'm your first choice, make Mark Leno your second choice. So, one, two, three. London Breed, 36. Mark Leno, 26. Judy Kim is out of the running. But her second choice people, 77% of them, because they had had this message, went to Mark Leno. (laughs) And so he ends up, because of that ranked choice voting, ahead of London Breed, where he is now. And the margin in San Francisco... uh, after yesterday, they counted 4,600 more votes. They still have 85,000 absentee ballots to count. <laughs> Good grief. So anything could happen. But at this point, uh, again, even though she was 10 points ahead in the beginning, by, by coming up with this ranked choice voting, Mark Leno is 1,121 votes ahead. In other words, the margin is 50.4% to 49.6 percent good grief that's as close as you that, that's, that's you know what this, this is gonna be another one where they flip a coin yeah right yeah yeah right but it just shows how this ranked choice voting can really uh, make a difference and so by the way this is going to turn out great however it turns out and in all um candor Mark Leno's been a friend of mine for a long time. I sent him a check. You'll see that if you look at his reports. He's a friend of mine. Uh, He would be the first openly gay mayor of the city of San Francisco. London Breed, whom I don't know, but I admire enormously, she would be phenomenal mayor as well. London Breed would be the first African-American woman mayor of San Francisco. So either way, we're going to make history in San Francisco. It's a win-win. It's a win-win. And I think this uh, ranked choice voting uh, turns out to be a win-win as well. Very, very, very interesting. Uh, back here on the uh, in the nation's capital front. Back here, back here in hell. Back here in hell. Uh, the big news yesterday was the pardon that the president announced. A commutation. I'm sorry. She's out of prison. Uh, and he, he announced this yesterday morning. She walked out of prison yesterday afternoon. Uh, Alice Marie Johnson, who's a grandmother and a great-grandmother, serving a life term uh, for a nonviolent drug charge, money laundering and um, and dealing in drugs. Uh, and she's the one, of course, who was recommended for a pardon by Kim Kardashian. Everybody laughed when Kim Kardashian shows up in the Oval Office. But this is the latest in the what are now being called the celebrity pardons of Donald Trump. And clearly, by the way, Alice Marie Johnson, does she deserve to be out of prison? Absolutely. This is the kind of person who should get a pardon. I mean, life sentence for a nonviolent drug crime. Pardon all of them. Insane. Pardon all of them. Anybody that's in jail for drugs. Absolutely. Let them out. out. Right. But um, so not not disputing um, the the merits of her pardon. What's a little troubling is that there is a whole process in the Justice Department for pardons. As I mentioned before, there are 10,000 people who have gone through that process, and the Justice Department says the people were unfairly, for whatever reason, sentenced and are in prison today, rotting in prison today. But Donald Trump doesn't—he's not 
but he's not looking at that system at all. All Donald Trump is looking at, at his friends. And who among his friends can he give a pardon to, right? So, um, or who among his friends' friends can he pardon? Kim Kardashian comes in and says, hey, I know this woman here, Donald Trump. Boom, done. Sylvester Stallone comes in. Hey, I know this this boxer. He should never have been in prison. He's dead now. Joe Jackson, I think his name is right? Jack Johnson. Jack yeah, Johnson, yeah. right. Okay. Trump says, boom, done. Somebody else said, hey, you remember Dinesh D'Souza, man. He was one of your big supporters. <laughs> oh, right. Boom. Celebrity. Boom. Done. Scooter Libby. Oh, he's a famous guy. He worked for Dick Cheney. Done. Joe Arpaio, my sheriff. First one, first sheriff in the country to endorse me. Rum. Pardoned. Done. And then he says, hey, who else is famous that needs a Well, how about Martha Stewart? Who's doing fine, by the way. Or Rod Blagojevich, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. So it is, it's, yeah, this little celebrity uh, pardon nonsense, which, um, uh, and now, of course, the biggest pardon, of course, he says now, maybe he'll pardon himself. <laughs> yeah, the biggest celebrity uh, pardon. Yeah, the biggest celebrity <laughs> pardon of all. Well, uh, Paul Ryan got a chance to, uh, he was asked about that uh, yesterday. I mean, as we say, a broken clock, even even a broken clock is right twice a day. Uh, Paul Ryan got this one right. I don't know the technical answer to that question, but I think obviously the answer is he shouldn't, and no one is above the law. Oh, whoa, whoa. boy, what Paul a bold Ryan. Stand. Oh, what a bold stand. He's really gone way out there. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Paul Ryan, boy. Are you sure, Paul, you want to take that back? You want to, you want to, little, you want to mulligan on that, Paul? We make jokes, sure? but like that. That's about. That's a that's a pretty high bar for a Republican to get over these days. I hate to put it that way, but like, they're having a really hard time putting themselves out there to say no one is above the law. Mm-hmm. A radical thought. Yeah. <laughs> that no one is above the law. Well, except. Yeah. Yeah. Except maybe Donald Trump, right? Yeah. Right. Uh, and uh, the uh, man himself yesterday, uh, his big. Uh, his big move yesterday was to go over to FEMA, uh, which turned out to be a real farce because, first of all, they had to, so this is he's going over there for a, brief, a FEMA briefing, right? Uh, and uh, the first lady goes with him. We haven't seen her cameras. She's not been in front of the camera for about 25, 26 days. I think it was 26 days yesterday. Uh, she was at a Gold Star reception, allegedly, allegedly a couple of days ago. Um, and so the president goes over there. He's got all his cabinet members seating around. Why? And who knows? But this briefing table. And it was sort of like another one of those love fests, like the first cabinet meeting. Uh, so the president went around the table. Of course, he starts with uh, the first lady, Melania. You hear him say things like this in public, and you wonder if they ever talk in private. But anyway, here he is. I'd like to sort of maybe uh, say and pay some respects to some of the people here today on the list. Uh, Of course, we have to start with our great first lady, Melania. Mm. Thank you, Melania. uh, She's doing great. Thank you, Melania. My name's Donald. Remember, remember me. By the way, did you did you see the tweets he put out yesterday about Melania? I missed these. They came out after the show yesterday. Uh, he says, the, "I saw him, but I'm sure I forgot him." Go ahead. The fake news media has been so oh, yeah. unfair and vicious to my wife and great first oh, right, lady Melania. Right. During her recovery from surgery, they reported everything from near death to facelift to left the White House and me. By the way, for New York or Virginia to abuse, all yeah. fake. She's doing really well. But, but none of that was reported. Not one. No. There were a lot of rumors flying around. 
Yeah. No, none of the media reported those rumors. He went on in his next tweet. He goes, we did not on this show either. No. And I heard them all. Sure. sure. Uh, he went on. He said, four reporters spotted Melania in the White House last yeah. week walking merrily along to a meeting. They never reported the sighting because it would hurt the sick narrative that she was living in a different part of the world, was really I- ill or whatever. Fake news is really bad. <laughs> So bad. He's so bad. What has happened? Uh, yes. Uh, so then he went around the room, and he uh, you, can, <laughs> you can go online and catch this. So he went around the room again and showered, smothered every one of them in effusive praise. Just v- makes you want to vomit the stuff. It, the stuff he loves them to say about him, yeah. like that first cabinet meeting where Mike Pence and Reince Priebus said how much that how lucky they were, how blessed they were to work for this man. So Donald Trump goes around, and he, everybody got it overboard. For example, when CNN did the count, um, he, he, 144 words lavished on Steve Mnuchin. 96 were, Wilbur Ross got 96 words of praise. Sleeping Wilbur Ross. Uh, Alex Azar, the new HHS secretary, 127. Yeah, do you think Ross is awake for that? 127 words for Alex Azar. Rick Perry, 141 words of praise from the chief of from the from the commander in chief or the uh, chief of cheese is that what Ken, <laughs> Kellyanne Conway called him the other yeah, day? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's the right. chief of cheese. <laughs> I like that's pretty that. cool. Um, Mick Mulvaney, budget director, because he has two jobs. <laughs> so he gets double the words. Uh, double words. Yeah. He got 185 oh, words. Wow, of, that's of a lot. Even Linda McMahon, nobody heard of, small business, gets 103 words of praise, and then he comes to Jeff Sessions. Jeff Sessions. Here he is, the total, after smothering, smothering all these people with praise, kissing their ass from one end of the room to the other. He gets to Jeff Sessions. Here is the total Jeff Sessions. Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you very much. (laughs) Damn, dude. 11 words. That's cold. Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Four of them, four of the 11 are his name and title. (laughs) How cold can you get? That's yeah. pretty cold-blooded. Well, in the last two days, he has said both days. I wish I'd never hired him. Yeah, I should have hired somebody else. I'm sorry he's there. <laughs> and Jeff Sessions just sits there and says, you got to fire me, buddy, because I mean, I'm not going anywhere. That is one of the meanest, cruelest oh. things you could do to somebody in Washington, D.C., yeah. Yeah. to essentially just ignore them. Right. Right? And, yeah. and to heap praise on everybody else. But you know what? what's so funny about this? Jeff Sessions is never going to leave that position until they drag him out kicking and screaming. He's getting embarrassed. This is the third time this week, and it's only Thursday, that the president has embarrassed him publicly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. he'll, 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 Every he'll day. keep going to work. Uh, <laughs> he'll just keep on going to work. And Jeff Sessions goes out of his way every time to say how great Donald Trump is. And he is doing everything. He is doing everything he can on immigration, being as mean as he can, just to try to get on Donald Trump's good side. And it's not going to work because the only thing Donald Trump cares about is this Russian uh, is this Russian investigation. Oh my! Oh my! There's so much, uh, so much big news today. Um, by the way, while we're talking about cabinet members. <laughs> um, Betsy DeVos, a couple of days ago, we, we didn't get into this yesterday. We ran out of time. But So remember, um, after Parkland, 
uh, when the administration did nothing. Well, the one little thing they did is Donald Trump said, we're going to look into this. We're going to have a committee because we need another committee. And this committee is going to look into gun violence in schools and what we should do about it. So Betsy DeVos was uh, in front of uh, the Senate, uh, one of the Senate committees a couple of days ago, uh, Senate Judiciary, actually, and um, she was giving a report on how they're doing with this Commission on School Violence. Uh, Senator Patrick Leahy asks, I think, uh, uh, okay, we're talking about safety in schools as a result of all these horrific gun massacres in schools, uh, even before Sandy Hook, but certainly since Sandy Hook and right after Parkland, Florida. Um, So what are you finding out? Obvious question about guns. Here's this little exchange. Will your commission look at the role of firearms as it relates to gun violence in our schools? That is not part of the commission's charge, per se. What? I see. So, you, um, so you're studying gun violence but not considering the role of guns. We're actually it- studying school safety and how we can ensure our students are safe but, at well, school. What? That's shocking. What? I mean, seriously. Shocking. They're looking at the issue of school safety, school violence, but they're not looking at the issue of guns at all. You know, but that's classic Donald Trump, too, right? I mean, I, and classic Betsy DeVos, totally, totally clueless, total waste of time. And one other cabinet member who just cannot get out of trouble uh, and shouldn't be there anymore at all, and that is EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt. We told you yesterday uh, the, the, the latest two and wait, 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 there's more. But the latest two were first, uh, so he's trying, he's got this apartment on Capitol Hill, he pays 50 bucks a night, he needs a new mattress. So, of course, like any of us would do, you take one of the people working with you and you, and, and you send him out to look for a mattress. Duh. Duh, duh right? That's what Scott <laughs> that Pruitt works. did. Took an EPA employee, said, go out and find, see if you can find me a good, cheap, used mattress. And uh, why don't you start at the Trump Hotel? Maybe they've got a few that they're trying to sell. Honestly, that's where they started, five-star hotel. That was one thing. Then the other thing we talked about yesterday is Scott Pruitt, again, gets one of his employees and said, I need your help. I need you to help me uh, help my wife get a Chick-fil-A franchise. He <laughs> personally calls the head of Chick-fil-A and says, "I need there's something we need to talk to you about. This is what he pitched his wife for the whole thing uh, to get this franchise, which, by the way, she ended up not getting. Uh, and... Scott Pruitt yesterday, (laughs) he defended this by saying, well, of course my wife wanted to work with Chick-fil-A because it's a good Christian company, Christian-owned company. Yeah, Bill. Yes, right. So So there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with this. Jesus wants us all to have a Chick-fil-A franchise. Jesus loves fried chicken sandwiches. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So is that bad enough? The latest with Scott Pruitt is he is such a grifter. He is such a grifter that uh, Scott Pruitt, well, he's been ordered out of the White House mess because it turns out that Scott Pruitt showed up every day for free lunch at the White House mess. Uh, Now, the the White House mess, I've eaten in the White House mess years and years ago under when President Clinton was there, I guess, right? 
Uh, it's a very exclusive, very special place for the top White House staff. It's not real big, but Scott Pruitt said there's no, he's complained that there's no cafeteria at the EPA. <laughs> so what's he going to do for lunch? God forbid he go out to a little restaurant right. and pay for his meal. Well, we know he likes going out to restaurants. Oh, he yes. gets a police escort to them. Exactly. Well, now he gets the police says what he's been doing is he's been showing up every day at the White House. He was showing up every day at the White House for lunch. And they finally sent out a letter saying, oh, we just want cabinet members to know. And by the way, he was the only one who did that. Only one. So it was directed at him. We want cabinet members to know that this is where you're, you're not welcome every day, that there are very few tables, there are very few places. And uh, once in a while, we love seeing a member of the cabinet in the White House mess. But, uh, Scott, not every day. No freeloader. Every, every day. day. Gets, every day. Gets, he overstayed his lunch <laughs> invitation to the White House. What a grifter, I'm telling you. You know, Jody. You Senator, know, Bill, I forgot to bring my oh, lunch today. So I know you live right worry. around the corner from the yeah, come uh, on over. studio. I'm just going to come over to your place. Uh, you and Carol could whip me up a little lunch, right? Every day. Every day. Every day. Every single day. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> uh, it. It, it, even a re, this is getting too much, even for the Republicans. I mean, Scott Pruitt. Let's face it; he's just a bad dude. Total, total money grubber. Doesn't belong. Not to mention, he's destroying the environment. Just doesn't belong there. Joni, Jody Ernst, Republican senator from Iowa, yesterday said it best. He is about as swampy as you get <laughs> here in Washington D.C. And if the president wants to drain the swamp, he needs to take a, a look at his own cabinet. About as swampy as you can get. That sums up Scott Pruitt. All right. A quick break. When we come back, Congressman John Garamendi, California's 3rd Congressional District. Big, big political uh, day in California. Night in California. Tuesday night. Lots and lots to talk about with uh, Congressman John Garamendi, as well as what's going on. Big meeting on the Dreamers today uh, among Republicans in Congress. We'll get it all from the good congressman coming up next. Quick break. We'll be right back. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, here we go now on Thursday, Thursday, June 7. Indeed, uh, the Bill Press Show live from our nation's capital and booming out to you uh, coast to coast online on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Also on television. Uh, that's why all these cameras are around the studio here on Free Speech TV and on the radio out in the greater Chicago area all over uh, the Chicago and the suburbs on the great WCPT, the progressive voice of Chicago. Uh, and uh, very pleased to welcome to the studio a longtime friend from California, the congressman from California's 3rd Congressional District, uh, up for another uh, two-year term uh, this year, Congressman John Garamendi. Hey, Congressman, good to see you. Pleasure to be with you, Bill. We go back a long way. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's say we have a little bit of tread on our tires still left. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, just we're still Keep going. going. Still, Keep going. Still going strong. And we've been uh, at it here a little bit this morning, Congressman, before you uh, came in, so... We'd like to hear from uh, what our viewers and listeners might have to say, Peter. Yes, indeed. We do have some comments on Twitter, at BP Show, at BP Show. Jim says, no matter what happens with the Trump investigation, President Pence will pardon him, and thus Trump <laughs> will, in fact, be above the, the law. law. <laughs> yeah, that's sort of a bummer to think about it that way. <laughs> Melanie Miller. That's pretty scary. Too. Yeah, it really is. I keep telling people, 
You want to get rid of Donald Trump? Fine, but remember. <laughs> Who packs him up? You yeah. get stuck with Mike Pence. Yeah. Uh, it could Me- be worse. Melanie Miller says, Believe what would not. happen if all of our allies stopped helping us in all of the wars we keep starting because of Trump? Did any GOP fools think of that? Uh, also, Paul Ryan says that Donald Trump is not above the law. Uh, oh, Phil geez. says, That's Paul Ryan. Old statement. Congressman, right? <laughs> real leadership. Yeah, real, yeah, real show was backbone. <laughs> our, our buddy Phil says, Paul Ryan, profile and squirrelage, which <laughs> so I think is pretty good. And we've talked about the ranked voting stuff uh, well, yeah. this morning. Uh, Tim Abel says, is ranked voting just an attempt to ensure the majority of the population actually get the candidate that they want? God forbid. What a radical what idea. A radical idea. <laughs> you can find us on Twitter at BP, Bill Press, BP Show. Uh, chime in with any comment on any topic at any time. We'll check them out. You know, uh, one of my favorite stories of the day, I don't know whether you saw this, is that uh, so with these tariffs and the president goes up to uh, uh, Canada, Quebec tomorrow tomorrow for the uh, G7 summit. Talk about walking into the hornet's nest, right? After he slaps tariffs on everybody else who's going to be there, right? That's correct. You look at it and you said, how many problems can this man create all by himself? You take a look at this uh, trade war. We really do have a serious trade war underway, and it's going to have a significant effect on all of us. And in addition to that, uh, uh, which one of our allies has he not seriously disrespected? No, right. I mean, he's pissed off uh, Macron of France, who yeah. tried every, really tried hard to be his buddy. Theresa May of Britain, and then Justin Trudeau of Canada. So that's why I was getting well, my favorite. Mexico. Oh, and Mexico. <laughs> Thank you. Right. So, in a conversation with Trudeau a couple of days ago, uh, he Trudeau was complaining about the tariffs, and, and Trump said, "Yeah, but you guys burned the White House in 1812." Uh, and somebody had to point out, uh, no, it wasn't Canada that burned the White House in 1812. Good Lord. <laughs> and this is our president. Yeah. This is our president. It, it, it would be funny if it weren't. If, it, if he were just back in Washington, in New York City doing his apprentice show. He, do his, he has a new apprentice show. Oh, yeah. It's called Pardon Me Now. Well, <laughs> <laughs> no, he's, that's right. He sits around the table and says, you're pardoned, and so you're fired. You're pardoned. Yeah. Blagojevich next, right? I don't know who's going to be next. I guess it's whoever walks in next to his office and lays down a... Well, with a with a movie star, right? Or Preferably, some... preferably somebody that's been on his show. Yeah. Uh, or that was uh, nice to him and didn't disrespect him sometime in the past. Right, right. Uh, it just, if, if you want incredible. a pardon, hire t- Ted Nugent. There you yeah. go. That's a good idea. Or yeah. Sly Stallone or, mm-hmm. you know, Kim yeah. Kardashian. Unbelievable. Let's talk California politics. Um, you first of all, you were on the ballot Tuesday night. Uh, obviously, you did okay. You're I here. I did okay. And, yeah, I did okay. I have a deep purple district. Bill, you would remember it's uh, the Sacramento Valley. I have a four point four billion dollar agricultural. Do you district. have Lock, California? I have Lock, California. Oh man. Okay. A very uh, one of the, the oldest Chinese Lock, community California. in the it's nation. Incredible. Yeah, it's a beautiful right little, little community. Yeah. yeah. So all about 200 miles of the Sacramento River, two big Air Force really? bases. Whoa, yeah. 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 So it's, uh, it, But it's a beautiful district. Top of the Sierras to the highest mountain on the coastal range and just a, absolutely beautiful, but an incredibly uh, diverse and challenging district, uh, politically challenging. California has really uh, changed uh, and in, in terms of becoming blue and bluer. Or-
Yes. Uh, so now with the governor's race, Gavin Newsom uh, up against John Cox. Really? How do you see that? I mean, I, I think the Democrats are likely we're likely to sneak into the governor's <laughs> office. <laughs> now, Gavin is going to blow him away. Uh, the president will undoubtedly come out and uh, support Cox, which will give Gavin another five or ten points. Uh, it's a uh, it's really interesting, Bill. When you and I were back, uh, well, maybe just a couple of years ago, back yeah. in California, yeah. we had a uh, two Republican senators. We had Republican governors. Mm-hmm. Most mm-hmm. of the statewide officers were Republican, mm-hmm. and then uh, a fellow by the name of Pete Wilson came along and began to uh, seriously disrespect um, minorities and immigrants and a whole series of things. And it wasn't within uh, half a dozen years that California went from a serious red state to a solid blue state, largely because of the uh, the changing demographics and the fact that uh, Democrats reach out to, to those people that uh, are looking for a better life, want to uh, have a great job uh, and uh, raise their families in a, in a good situation. And California has just been growing and uh, turning very, very blue. And, and there's no greater area of resistance to the Trump agenda than California. And Donald Trump has, in effect, declared war on California, on immigration, on on the sanctuary cities, on uh, the clean air standards, uh, on the new cafe, the new car, you know, fuel efficiency standards, across the board. You name it. And Jerry Brown, of course, climate change. Gary Brown has been the one who's been leading the battle. Is Gavin Newsom up to that charge, do you think? I think he is. Uh, in his acceptance speech, uh, he was very, very clear that uh, he is going to continue the uh, pushing back against the crazy Trump policies, all of those that you just mentioned. And uh, more, I'm sure. I didn't even... Yeah. Yeah, it's a very long list. So Offshore I would, drilling. <laughs> he wants to open up the entire coast well, offshore except, drilling. Except off Mar-a-Lago in Florida. <laughs> yeah, that's true, right? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, uh, it, but, so I think we're going to have a, we're going to have a, a successful um, general election. I believe we're going to take back um, three, maybe four Republican seats. Already there's uh, we have 53, so there's 13, 14 Republicans uh, still left in mm-hmm. the California congressional delegation. I think there may be even there will be even fewer after this next election. Well, you know, everybody was worried that uh, there were so many Democrats. The enthusiasm was so high on the Democratic side uh, that there were so many that therefore that meant so many Democrats running for office that they were tripping over each other. And some of these seats, particularly down in Orange County, they'd get locked out because you'd end up with two Republicans. It didn't happen. It didn't happen, but it was very, very close. No, right. Let's <laughs> just say it was, it was scary. a squeaker. Yeah, uh, but, yeah, we were. But now, those, so several of those districts are now in play. Right, is what you're I saying. Think every, every uh, congressional seat <laughs> is in play. Uh, certainly, the Democrats. Uh, well, on the Democratic held seats, there were four that in which the Republicans didn't even bother mm. to put up a Republican candidate. Mm. Uh, in those seats that the Democrats want to take back, uh, we have candidates in every one of them. It's still close. There's still votes to be counted, but uh, I believe we're going to be okay in all of them. But it was very, very close. This top two go forward, the jungle primary, it's got to end. It is bad for it is bad for political parties, period, whether you're a Democrat or Republican. The jungle primary. The jungle primary. Yeah. Uh, and... By the way, back to when you and I were uh, active in California, Paul. You still are, um, but uh, both of us active there. Orange County, you know, behind the orange curtain, we used to call it, right? But Absolutely. now you've got 
Mimi Walter's seat, Ed Royce's seat, Daryl Ice's seat, and Roy Barker. uh, Roy Barker's seat, all of which are all in play. In play. All yeah. in play. Unbelievable. Uh, this is, once again, as I said earlier, when Pete Wilson took on the um, the demographics of California and started disrespecting Hispanics and minorities and Asians and so forth, <laughs> Orange County's <laughs> demographics has radically shifted from a uh, bastion of white, wealthy folks to uh, one of which it is now a very, very diverse population. Uh, the whole strata of economic uh, status is there. And uh, people are looking for the democratic message. They want that message that we like to say uh, a better deal, better education, better opportunities for jobs, higher wages, uh, education, being able to go to college without bankrupting yourself for the rest of your life, all of those things. Yeah. By the way, I'm with you on this jungle primary um, because, I mean, people may say, well, it's it helps the Democrats now because, for example, there's no Republican candidate for U.S. Senate. It's going to be Senator Feinstein versus Kevin yeah. DeLeon. But, you know, what helps us now could come back and bite us in the ass well, later, right? Bill, we came very, very close to not having Democratic candidates in four of the congressional seats that we have a reasonable chance of taking back. We mm. came within a hair's breadth. Well, shall we just say within a thousand, yeah. within less than a thousand votes in Re- every one yeah. of those cases? Yeah. So it's not yeah. good for, for anybody, Democrats or Republicans or independents for that matter. Now, you're not that far from San Francisco. Have you had, a, have you had an opportunity— to look at this rank choice voting that they're using in San Francisco? Uh, I'm concerned with it because it's open to gaming. You can play some real serious games with this, and we've seen this over in Oakland. Uh, some uh, the, the, the top candidates uh, in the mayor's race in Oakland a few years ago uh, were outplayed in the game of rank voting. So if you're able to uh, get your constituent, your, your voters to rank you in a certain way and your opponents in a different way, uh, you can be at the bottom of the heap and wind up at the top and rank voting. So I'm concerned about the way it's open. It is open to being played with. Right. You know, in San Francisco, I talked about a little bit earlier, there are two lead, the two leading candidates, I think both of whom, either of whom would make a great mayor. London Breed would be the first African-American mm-hmm. uh, woman. Mayor. As mayor, Mark Leno, the first openly gay mm-hmm. uh, mayor of San Francisco, believe it or not, San Francisco. Uh, but there, London Breed was 10 points ahead in the first round and of, of Mark Leno. And when they shifted because of added the second choice voters, yeah. Mark is now 1,000 votes ahead of London Breed. They still have 85,000 votes to count. Who knows how it's going to end up? I think in this case, either one of us will be, it will be great, right? Either one. But uh, so you're right. You can come in of- number one. And then not win. Uh, this has happened. It had happened in Oakland uh, about huh. a decade yeah. ago. And uh, it's because of that that you can play a game with this. If you have a well-organized campaign, you can be the uh, the lower on the uh, on the ranking and still and win. Still, and still win. Yeah. Right. Congressman John Garamendi with us from California's 3rd uh, Congressional District. Big meeting today, Congressman, on the Hill uh, with, in the Republican caucus. Paul Ryan and Kevin McCarthy trying to uh, thwart the chances of this discharge position on the Dreamers. The last time I checked, there were 215 out of 218 signatures. Is that your count? I think there are two or three short. Yeah. Uh, So we need that many Republicans to actually, for the first time in a decade, vote on on the House floor on an immigration bill. Um, How do you think it's going to go? I think you can add and you can subtract here. 
And so uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see two added and one subtracted. Ooh, right. So uh-huh. it's possible so that they'll uh, play games with that. You think? I, I'm afraid. I think they will. Do you have any doubt that if a standalone Dreamers bill were on the floor of the House and Paul Ryan would allow a vote, that it would pass? Oh, oh absolutely. It passed with a strong majority. Uh, in fact, a, Even comprehensive, Republican votes. a comprehensive yeah. immigration bill in which you deal with everything, border security and what do you deal with the 10 million that are here that are without papers? Uh, what are you going to do about the, uh, uh, the Dreamers? Uh, agricultural, labor, high-tech, uh, visas, all those kinds of things, uh, it would pass. But the Republicans have not allowed a vote. Now, keep in mind, the Senate actually passed a comprehensive mm-hmm. bill a in 2011, ago, right? 12, something yeah. like that. Um, but the House will not do that. They, uh, the leadership attempts to protect its vulnerable members by not having them vote on what is arguably one of the most important public policy issues that face this nation. But, of course, what's happening now is some of those vulnerable Republicans are saying we're vulnerable because we're not doing anything about exactly. the dreamers. Well, that's right. why you have moderate uh, 20, 23, 24 Republicans going, oh, my God, we got to do something here because i got a problem back home. i got folks that want to get these dreamers uh, mm-hmm. uh, papers. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. But uh, I'm concerned about this adding and subtracting. I think it's uh, subject to uh, subtraction. And uh, the speaker is perfectly capable of twisting arms. Some folks that would like to be chairman or are chairman of key committees and subcommittees have already signed on to that petition. Guess what could happen to their chairmanship? They could wind up uh, being the lowest ranking member in a different committee if the uh, speaker doesn't uh, like what they're doing. So I think subtractions are possible. Right. What um, I'm sure you've had briefings on this, uh, maybe not since Tuesday, uh, but the, one of the big challenges this year, of course, is Democrats taking back the control of the House mm-hmm. uh, and the Senate. Most people give the Democrats a better chance uh, than of taking the House than the Senate. Uh, how, how do you read it, just looking at the big picture nationwide? We're, is this a blue wave year? We're well positioned. Uh, the policies that Americans care about uh, are the Democratic policies. You take a look at the Republicans did on tax I mean, they gave the fortune to the fortunate, those folks that already have a fortune. Yeah. I was looking at it. Uh, Exxon had a $5.5 billion tax reduction in uh, 2017, last year. Uh, and so you go through this thing, and why did you give major corporations such a wealth and the top, you know, what is it, 83% of all of the wealth goes, mm-hmm. all of the tax cuts go to the super wealthy and to large corporations? Uh, so on all of these economic policies, we're in good shape. Now, which is there a blue wave? I think there's, there clearly is the potential for one, but there's a word that uh, constantly keeps kind of coming to my mind, and that is events. What are the events that will happen between now and November? Uh, I can imagine a lot of events that would uh, mm-hmm. cause that wave to grow even bigger. Right. And, you know, maybe Trump comes back from uh, Singapore with a uh, denuclearization, a real one. Well, there's an event that would be significantly helpful to Trump and to the Republicans. I don't think that's going to happen, unfortunately. I wish it would, mm-hmm. but um, mm-hmm. I don't think it will. Yeah. 
You're right. You never know. You don't know what what you don't know. What, what could impact. Particularly that with this president. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> every morning from, is an OMG morning. <laughs> from one day to the next. You know what? I mean, here we are, Thursday, June seven. There's no guarantee that this summit is going to happen on Tuesday, June twelve. Right? I mean, it looks like it, but he could pull the plug. It, it would not be out of character for him. He could to do that and pull the plug. Uh, he's done it once, <laughs> or uh, maybe more than once. I, yeah, it's, I mean, with this summit, he's canceled it once. Well, it's, he it's he also good. keeps saying that he he could get up and walk away from the table. Uh, he is yeah. unpredictable. Is that a reasonably kind way of describing him? I think that's him? about the kindest description I've heard of Donald Trump probably on this show uh, exactly. ever. Yeah. Uh, but but, uh, but Democrats, but you feel have a have a we've good. got a we've got a good chance, a very very good chance. We have very good candidates all across the nation. Uh, we have uh, a very strong message, and we're up against a very real uh, problem maker. We're up against not just the the president, but also the uh, Republicans in Congress, uh, particularly those who who are candidates are running against that have a very very bad record on things that count uh, for, as they say, around the kitchen table. Uh, what have you done for uh, helping my kid get uh, get to college and get through there without being bankrupt the rest of his life? What are you going right. to do about jobs and wages? Uh, all of those things that are uh, that are pocketbook issues. Uh, and those are the issues that you and I would agree Democrats should be talking about. Should they also be talking about impeachment? I think that'll run its own course. I don't think it's something that we spend a lot of time on. The public obviously knows that it's a possibility. I don't think that uh, we would be successful if that's our our principal message. Uh, The public is, uh, I think, appropriately concerned about what an impeachment process would mean to to the nation. Uh, At the same time, we have a president that uh, may very well find himself in a situation because of what he has done uh, in an impeachment process. A position. It's quite possible. But I don't think it's something we ought to make as our principal campaign. Uh, yeah. And I, but by the way, I'm with you on that. I, I, first of all, it's not going to happen as long as Republicans are in control of the House. That's right? correct. I mean, so that's correct. Yeah, first things first. And right? so, uh, yeah. First things first. Get the House back first and then. And then we'll see yeah. what happens. I say events. The Mueller, I think there's still an investigation underway. Guess what? <laughs> Guess what? <laughs> yeah, hello, yeah. Donald Trump. And, yes, there is. Yes, right. And and by the and, way, I suspect that Mueller has the tax returns. Now, what does that mean? Yeah, I think he has the president's tax returns, and and so we must ask the question: Why didn't the president want to release them? Well, my guess is Mueller knows a lot that we don't know, that, and we'll see where it goes. That would be a very interesting wrinkle to this whole thing. I I, I think you're right. Yeah, I think you're right. And, and that's why maybe that we see so much, it's, it looks like so much more interest in the financial follow uh, transactions. The money. Follow yeah, the exactly. money. Always and do we that. know that for 20 years, Donald Trump has been trying to do deals with Russia and building properties there and getting loans from banks there. I just to point out, this didn't get any news at all. I, di- I didn't realize this. I saw it in, a, in our little um, trawl of articles this morning. That um, it turns out now that uh, the president's daughter, Ivanka Trump, was in contact with a Russian athlete who offered to set up a meeting with, between Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin in order to facilitate building a 100-story Trump Tower in Moscow. So in terms of all these people meeting with the Russians, we've seen 
you know, George Papadopoulos and Carter Page and Paul Manafort and all these people now. Well, there you go. And, and, and the president's daughter involved. Uh, we shouldn't be surprised. This family has played on the edge of propriety their entire career. Donald Trump has a reputation in New York of being somebody that the bankers don't want to deal with. Why? Mm-hmm. Well, you can't trust him. Yeah. Uh, on the business side of life. Uh, we've certainly seen that on the political side, too. So all of those things add up, and there's a long, long history here uh, of uh, involvement in this family on, on issues that are of question. Congressman, it's great to see you. Thank My you pleasure. so much. All right. Pleasure to be here. All right. Bill. Come back again soon. Congratulations, Congressman John Garmendi. Yeah, thank you. When we come back, Stuart Eisenstadt is going to tell us all about the Jimmy Carter legacy right here on the Bill Press Show. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, friends, don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of the Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how you can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show, and on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. <laughs> yes, indeed. If you want a pardon, don't go to the Justice Department. Just find a movie star. Hey, Stice Salone or uh, Kim Kardashian, Ted Nugent. Who knows? That's who Donald Trump is listening to for pardons these days. What do you say, everybody? It's a Thursday, Thursday, June 7. Uh, so good to see you today. Thank you for joining us. It is the Bill Press Show. We are coming to you live from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, as always, with the news of the day. And like every day in Trump land, um, there's a lot to talk about on many different fronts. Uh, the president uh, going out of his way yesterday to uh, humiliate and embarrass Attorney General Jeff Sessions yet once again. Uh, Rudy Giuliani going out of his way to almost trying to scuttle the uh, big summit coming up next Tuesday when he said that uh, Kim Jong-un was actually on his hands and knees begging uh, for a uh, summit. Um, (laughs) Rudy does enough damage when he's talking about the Mueller investigation. Maybe he ought to stay away from foreign policy. At any rate, we'll bring you up to date on all of those events and even more. Uh, And this half hour, a very special treat to look back uh, at a president and a presidency that doesn't get the attention or the credit that it deserves. We're talking about the White House years of President uh, Jimmy Carter. Uh, And in studio with us, author of the new book about the Carter legacy, uh, Stuart Eisenstadt, who is a domestic policy advisor, right, for the president. Stuart, nice to see you. Thank you for having me. All right. Thanks for coming in. We'll dive right into it with all of you. And remember, we want to hear from you. Your comments on what we're talking about, all the news of the day. Send us your comments on Twitter, at BP Show. And we'll get right into it. But first... 
We take a break for the, uh, the big off-the-wall headlines here from Peter Ogburn. Yes, indeed. As I mentioned, last night there was no NHL action, but tonight, tonight, there will be some action in Las Vegas. The oh, Washington yes. Capitals taking on the Las Vegas Golden Knights. If the Capitals win, they will be Stanley Cup champions. Just saying, keep an eye out. Watch it on TV tonight if that's your thing. Starts at 8 o'clock this evening. All right, can I say something about that? You sure can. All right. First of all, I'm a big Caps fan. Sure. Okay. And there's a big, okay, the big issue in Washington is, do we want the Caps to win tonight? Or do you want them to blow it tonight and then so they'll come back here on Sunday yeah. and play the winning game at home? This okay? is the thing. I've heard this from a lot of people. I cannot believe people are asking this question. Yeah. Win the game win the tonight. Damn game. Win the damn win game. The, the, the whole point is to win the Stanley Cup, right? Yeah. This is insane. Win tonight. Then it, we'll celebrate. It looks good, right? They're up. Three games to one. Yes. All I'm going to do is win yes. one more. I will remind you that it was only a couple of years ago that the Golden State Warriors were up three games to one on the Cavaliers, and the Cavaliers clawed their way back mm. and won the series it yeah. is not a given yeah, you are so. de- not de- you're not definitely going to win just because you're up three games to one so, and we yeah. want you to also know that our videographer uh your 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 friend our and ours cyprian bolding yeah uh, is in Las Vegas yeah. representing us. He will be at the game tonight. He's, he's going to be there. <laughs> he's going to be there. Uh, all right, so Facebook is trying to redo its image, obviously. They've had a lot of problems. Yesterday they announced that they're going to be doing some news programming on Facebook, and they're going to get some help. They're going to get some big names like Anderson Cooper of CNN, Shepard Smith of Fox News, Jorge Ramos of Univision. They're going to try and improve the quality of the news on the social network. A big problem, of course, when people talked about the original meaning of fake news before Mm -hmm. Donald Trump sort of co-opted it and turned it into his own thing was that it was being shared so much on Facebook, especially there's so much fake news. So they're going to the professionals. They're going to actual people who, you know, do the news to help figure out what's fake news, what isn't, and they're going to actually participate. So they're going to be producing shows for Facebook's video service. So you'll be able to catch them on CNN, Fox, Univision, and on Facebook. Uh, first of all, I, <laughs> Facebook, they're, they're trying too hard here almost, I yeah. think, right? they got some other problems they have to deal with first. The other thing is, how many jobs can Anderson Cooper have? <laughs> I mean, and, and Anderson's a good friend of mine, and he does he's phenomenal on CNN. This is the Bill Press Show. Here we go now with our number two on the Bill Press Show this Thursday, June 7. So good to see you today, folks. Thank you so much for joining us. It is the Bill Press Show. We start out here in Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, and our studio in Capitol Hill, just down the street from the United States Cong- Congress, uh, the United States Capitol, should say, and about five metro stops away from the White House. We'll bring you up to date on what's going on uh, here in uh, in Washington and around the country and look forward to hearing from you if you send us your comments on Twitter at BP Show on the news of the of the day. Uh, joining you, of course, on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Looking at you on Free Speech TV, the great Free Speech TV. Thank you for joining us in TV land and on the radio out in the greater Chicago area on WCPT. 
President Jimmy Carter, 1976 to 1980. Remember those years, and some of us do. Uh, Stu Eisenstadt was in the White House with President Carter as his domestic policy advisor, uh, out with a new book, The White House Years, President Carter. Uh, and he joins us in studio. Stu, it's good to see you. Thank Bill, you. Thank you for having me. Right. Uh, this is quite a, quite a piece of work here, right? 900 pages. You have to trim it down. Did you? Or? It was trimmed down. <laughs> it is a comprehensive look based on 5,000 pages of contemporaneous notes that I took of every meeting, every phone call. Whoa. It's a habit I've had since uh, law school and college. I recorded it uh, accurately. I interviewed over 350 people, those who were pro-Carter, anti-Carter, Republicans and Democrats. And I'm very pleased that the Washington Post, the New York Times coming out Sunday, even the National Review say that it is a good reassessment of a presidency that was underappreciated, but it's also honest and candid about the mistakes he made, that I made, that others made. So it really is an insider's view based on actual notes, actual interviews, but also trying to take a historian's view of uh, objective uh, history and history that's important even today. Well, let me come back for a second because we have known each other since those years. And when I was uh, a young pup uh, working for Governor Jerry Brown, uh, I would come back to the uh, Carter White House uh, on some policy issues, particularly I remember um, offshore drilling. I was uh, on President, part of President Carter, uh, Secretary uh, Cecil Andrus's uh, offshore drilling advisory committee at the time. Uh, but whenever I came to the White House, I would meet with you uh, as a representative of Governor Brown. Are you telling me you kept these notes of every meeting, including the meetings that we had? That is correct. <laughs> I didn't know and that. that. And that is the authenticity of this yeah. book. So his failures are well known, Bill. I call it the eyes. Inflation, Iran, inexperience of himself and the Georgia Mafia, interparty warfare with Ted Kennedy. But they've overshadowed a remarkable set of accomplishments that make him, in my opinion, the most accomplished one-term president that we've ever had. Over 70% of his major legislation was passed by Congress just under the legendary LBJs. How much? Almost 70% really? of yeah. all of his major legislation. So if you look at the energy security we enjoy today, it's largely due to our three energy bills, which we worked on, by the way, with, with Governor Brown as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We put conservation at the center of America's consciousness. We inaugurated the solar uh, and wind and clean energy revolution, even put a solar panel on the White House. He was the greatest environmental president that we've ever had, attacked uh, water projects, doubled the size of our national parks with the Alaska Lands Bill on things like offshore drilling, was very, very cautious about the uh, environment. Ethics, he ran against Watergate and the scandals, but it was not just rhetorical, Bill. All the ethics legislation, which is more important than ever today, yeah. the disclosures going into Office of Assets, gift limits, restrictions on lobbying, the special counsel legislation emanated from us the inspectors general to root out fraud, waste, and abuse emanated from us. He was a great consumer champion. Didn't appoint industry stalwarts as today to regulate their industries. He appointed pro-consumer people, even many from Ralph Nader's, Nader's Raiders, and then backed it up by deregulating all the transportation modes. 
railroads, trucks, and most important to the average consumers, uh, airlines. We would not have the Jet Blues and the Southwests and the competition today were it not for that. And even those who love their local craft beers, we ended the regulations that had barred those coming from prohibition days. And in foreign policy, Camp David and the Age of Peace Treaty, uh, Boy, Panama talk about Canal. something that has taken off. If, if there's any legacy of the Carter years, it may be this this in, incredibly successful craft beer industry today. I yes, mean, yes. Nobody, no, so many parts of the world, Portland, Oregon, Bend, Oregon, but also Washington, D.C. has a great craft beer business. Yes, and, and in foreign policy, the accomplishments are even well, more significant. Camp David and the peace treaty with Egypt has lasted without any violation for 40 years. It's critical to Israel's security. Uh, we put human rights bill at the center of our foreign policy, both applying it to right-wing dictatorships in Latin America and really giving the momentum to the democratic movements there, combining it with the Panama Canal Treaty for a whole new era in Latin relations. We did the same thing with the Soviet Union on human rights, reaching out to the dissident movement, the democratic movement headed by Andrei Sakharov, Natan Sharansky, the famous Soviet refusenik, and mm-hmm. championing that movement. We normalized relations with China. All of these things were done, uh, and what I've tried to do in the book is give a complete assessment, not to whitewash the problems, to deal with them candidly, but to look at the total reassessment. And, and in many ways, he's sort of like Harry Truman. He That was his political idol. He brought in his famous slogan, the buck stops here on his Oval Office. Both left office very unpopular. Truman is now remembered much more for his achievements oh, yeah. and failures. Yeah. And my book is an effort to look at Carter not just as a great former president, but someone who had major accomplishments in the domestic arena. And one thing else I think would be important to you and to your audience. If you saw the RBG film about uh, Ruth Bader Which Ginsburg. Which I haven't yet, and well, I have to, but I've heard She credits in the movie with a picture, Jimmy Carter for his appointment over. Stephen Breyer credits Carter for his appointment on the First Circuit leading to to that. But most important, Jimmy Carter, a Southern governor, appointed more women and minorities to judgeships and to senior positions than all 38 presidents before him put together. Mm. He supported affirmative action. He supported minority set-asides. He respected the law. Uh, And so, you know, I think in many ways I'm trying to give a a reassessment of a very underappreciated presidency, and that's what the New York Times Review says coming out on Sunday, as the Washington Post two weeks ago did. Well, the Washington Post was a very glowing review. Um, I just got my copy last night, so I haven't had a chance to dive into it yet, but I'm really looking forward to it because, you know, Stuart, you, you know better than anybody for most people, when they hear Jimmy Carter, they think of a failed presidency, someone who came here um, from Georgia, didn't know Washington, came here with a bunch of rubes, if I can use that word, who didn't know Washington and were in over their heads and just got thrown out after four years. An that, unfair assessment, but you have admit that's that, broadly— That is absolutely— the, Yeah. And that's I, the I, reason I wrote the book, not again to whitewash those problems, Bill. They were very real. But— to recognize that they shouldn't obscure the really huge accomplishments that he made. So where did the idea of the failure come from? It came, I think, really from two essential reasons. Uh, The first was that inflation was, in fact, roaring 
But we had the same inflation problem that Nixon and Ford did. We inherited it. It got worse under our tenure because, in part, of the Iran crisis, the shutdown in oil. It doubled the price of oil. Gasoline lines, Nixon had them after the Yom Kippur OPEC embargo. We had them as well. Second was Iran, and this Mm -hmm. is really our Achilles heel. And here I'm very candid and very honest. Jimmy Carter can't be blamed, Bill, for the Shah going into exile any more than Eisenhower can be blamed for the Castro Revolution 90 miles away. But we made huge mistakes. The CIA, which had reinstalled the Shah in 1953, and six presidents lavished tens of billions of dollars of arms, did not know that his domestic support rested on quicksand. They did not know that for five years he was undergoing cancer treatment. They didn't know that. Mm. They didn't appreciate the impact that Khomeini's tapes from exile in Paris were having, were having uh, it, yeah. back at home. And then Carter made a very seminal decision. Once the hostages are taken, what do you do? Dr. Brzezinski, the National Security Council advisor, and I recommended immediate military action, not bombing, but putting mines uh, around the harbors or blockading, as Kennedy did with the Cuban Missile Crisis, mm-hmm. to prevent oil coming out, to show immediately that this was intolerable that it was a breach of all international norms. Instead, the president made a humanitarian decision. I think it was the incorrect one. He met with the hostage families, and he said, my number one priority, Bill, is to get your loved ones back safely. And he did. But in the process, there were 444 days of humiliation at the hands of this radical aging Ayatollah. And then Carter compounded the problem by holding up in the White I House. I was just going to say the Rose Garden the strategy, Rose Garden strategy right? was sort of saying, okay, I'm going to f- spend full time on this. Yeah, yeah. That only caused more press attention. The, the Ted Koppel show, Nightline, started that uh, way with the hostage yep, crisis. Yep. Cronkite. Every night. Every night every with night. the Ted, Card- uh, Ted Koppel, it was how many yes, days, how many Cronkite days, how many days. Cronkite would end every CBS broadcast, day 103, day 305. And then, of course, the failed rescue effort which I go into in detail. And I've even interviewed the chief of staff of Khomeini himself in my interviews. But the failed rescue effort did not occur, as many people think, because we didn't have enough helicopters. The president added more than the military required. It was there were four military services, Bill, involved. They had never practiced together. Now we have a joint command. We didn't there. And so when that helicopter, before the rescue, hit the C-130 cargo plane, eight servicemen died the flames in Desert One went up. So did our administration go up in flames. Right. Now, did uh, did President, uh, ended up being president, did Ronald Reagan play games with getting those hostages out well, in order Gary, to impact the uh, outcome of the election? Um, Gary Sick, uh, who was our national security advisor on Iran, contended that he did. That there was. Uh, that he told the Iranian, hold these hostages, don't yes. let them come out yet because that'll help Jimmy Carter. Yes. You know, keep there's them never, there until I'm sworn in. There's never been any in. proof of that. However, we do know that George Bush was in Paris uh, and uh, that we know, and for reasons that were, which were not clear. Um, and we do know that there was the arms for, hot, you know, the Iran Contra matter in which we ended up, through Reagan, giving arms to Iran. If we had done that, we could have gotten them out. Now, what we do know and what is absolutely certain, and I interviewed Jim Baker and got the confirmation, he was Reagan's campaign manager, and he was also ultimately his chief of staff and then secretary of state. That is that in the crucial debate 
eight days before the election between Carter and Reagan, they stole our debate books. They had my debate book, which I had prepared. They knew all of our attack lines. When Reagan said, there you go again, and all that's because they knew all of it. It's been proven now. And Jim Baker, in the interview, one of the 350 I did, I said, Jim, is it true? He said, it's absolutely true that the, our campaign manager uh, came into me and, and, and gave it to, to me and said, that's I thought ast- you'd like to sue that's that. That's astounding. How astounding. did they? How did they steal it? We still don't know I how mean, they did right, it. Yeah, these but days we you believe, would say they hacked it, right? Believe, they would hack we, it, but this was not online, it, no, right? We believe it came from a fellow named Paul Corbin, who was a, a disaffiliated Kennedy supporter, Ted Kennedy oh. supporter. He had a contact uh, through Pat Lucy's daughter on the White House, and we think that's how it occurred. And interestingly, the chairman of the Reagan campaign had been in the OSS, the predecessor to the CIA, CIA, and he's the one that gave it to Jim Baker, and Jim was really very humorous in a way. He said, you know, I, I had to testify in Congress, and I knew he was going to say, no, no, I never gave it to Jim Baker. He said, I testified honestly that he did. I was afraid because he had been with the OSS oh, that he, he would. would beat the lie detector test, but the fact is that Jim Baker confirmed that they had stolen that debate book, and people think, well, it was a landslide. It was. But eight days before, before that debate, Bill, it was not only neck and neck, we were actually ahead. Mm. That debate was decisive. And and they stole the briefing they book. They stole our briefing book. Wow. Yeah, there are two other th- things that I recall that, that hurt the image of President Carter. One was the famous malaise speech, right? People said, oh, this was such a downer, right? Where, you know, I'm you really glad you mentioned to that. to lift you up, and yet he said, oh, things are really tough, really I, bad. I think one of the most exciting parts of the book— Now, I may be reading it wrong, no, but I no, just— No, you're not reading just, it wrong. One of the most exciting parts of the book is dealing with all of that and having created the modern vice presidency with Mondale, making it a real partner. Mondale told me, after the Malay's speech and the cabinet firing, that he was going to resign. I'm the only White House staff person who knew that. It's disclosed for the first time in this book. Now, what happened was Carter came back from the G7 summit uh, in Tokyo. We were going to give an energy speech. It was already announced to deal with the gas lines. He came back. He was exhausted. He said, I've given four energy speeches. Nobody's listening to me. Went to Camp David, spent 10 days there, had all the experts come Mm -hmm. to try to right the ship of state. And then there was a conclusive meeting at the very cabinet room table in Camp David at which the Camp David Accords were reached. Mondale and I on one side, Patrick Cadell, his 29-year-old wonderkin pollster, Ham Jordan and others on the other. And Cadell was sort of a Rasputin-type character who had convinced Mrs. Carter and the president that the real problem the country had was a sort of malaise. It was a uh, narcissistic society. People were only caring about themselves. And Mondial and I said, that's not the case. It's because inflation is high. It's because we've got gas lands. That's what we have to deal mm. with. Mondale came as close to choking him as he could. <laughs> but the interesting thing is Carter never used the term malaise. It was the crisis of confidence. The press used it. Hmm. And the speech in the end, Bill, as I show, contrary to what I thought, was a huge success. His polls went up 17% in a day. The newsroom, the person in the mailroom who had worked since FDR's days, said to us, 
I've never seen such an outpouring of support. What then happened? Two days later, he decided to fire the entire cabinet. Right. Yes. And yeah. that's what got Mondale hmm. so upset, and that's what quashed all the momentum from the so-called Malay speech. So actually, it the was a success. The itself was a success, right? But it was, it was what happened it was a disaster. And the other thing I think of, which um, I, I think he should get certainly more credit for, is that he uh, asserted that human rights was a central element to uh, United States foreign yes, policy. Yes, and for him, Bill— And by the way, shouldn't it be? <laughs> it should be, because it expresses the values of our country. Yeah. It was, for him, the flip side of civil rights at home. He had grown up in a county— in southwest Georgia that was two-thirds black. His playmates were all black. When he was on the Sumter County Board of Education, his first elected job, he told me in one of the interviews that he saw teenage black students in the supposed separate but equal school system having desks for four-year-olds. So this was very emblazoned in him, and he carried that civil rights concern into Mm. foreign policy by applying it both to the right-wing dictators. We got thousands of political prisoners released. We stimulated the whole democratic movement in Latin America. You can talk about any, to any Democrat with a small d, elected mm-hmm. president in Latin America. They will tell you it was Jimmy Carter who really activated it. And then we applied it also to the Soviet Union, to their soft underbelly. So as we were in competition with the Soviets for the hearts and minds of the third world, applying the best American values to the Soviet Union was such a stark contrast mm-hmm. with their repressiveness and our tolerance. Now, of course, when we talk about the current administration, Jimmy Carter appealed to the better angels. He didn't stoke grievances. Yes, he ran against Washington, but the differences between them are very stark in terms of where we are uh, today. He respected the institutions. He respected the Justice Department and the FBI. Let me give you one example. We appointed as part of our whole ethics legislation, we had a special counsel's office. The first target of that office, ironically, was Jimmy Carter's own chief of staff, Ham Jordan, for the false charge made by Roy Cohn, <laughs> who was the hatchet man for McCarthy, yeah, right. and by the way, Donald Trump's and first. Donald Trump's uh, Donald Trump hired him exactly. after the McCarthy exactly. years, and the two of them, I mean, that so talk he about charged all kinds that of. Ham had smoked cocaine at Studio 54 in New York. Totally false to get his own client off. Totally false. But because of the special counsel law and the hair trigger, Ham became the first person investigated. Did Carter blame the special counsel? Did he try to undercut the special counsel? Did he try to denigrate the special counsel? Did he counsel? call him a no. witch hunt? No. <laughs> no, that's yeah. a point. Yeah. I mean, yeah. with his own chief of staff. So we respected the institutions. And although Carter was fiscally conservative and progressive on civil rights and poverty, um, he he really respected the office and respected government's capacity to do things. He didn't divide us. He tried to unite us. He didn't stoke differences. He tried, again, to appeal to the better angels. So it's a stark contrast with what we have today. Uh, the book, again, is President Carter. It's a Tom Dunn book, uh, my publisher as well, from... Uh, from St. Martin's Press uh, in New York, um, and it is available uh, wherever. We'll have a link up on our website and wherever you buy books, hopefully at your local independent bookstore or, of course, on Amazon and barnesandnoble.com, whatever. So, Stuart, you said that President Carter, which I would not contest at all, 
is certainly our most successful one-term president. He's probably also our most successful former president ever, isn't he? He is, but the purpose of the book is is not to dwell on that. Right. Yes, he certainly is. I mean, the Carter Center has been involved in the kinds of things he was doing during the presidency, human rights, democracy promotion, health care, ending several diseases like uh, guinea worm and river blindness in Africa, monitoring elections to assure democratic elections. That's a continuation of what he was doing as president. And what I wanted to do with this book, Bill, is say everyone knows he was and is a Mm -hmm. great former president. But he also did many consequential things and many important things as president. Right. Um, How is President Carter today? And how well, active is he? Is and what does he think about his, when you reflected with, as you did with him on his presidency, um, what are his feelings about his presidency? Well, I interviewed him five times hmm. among the 350 interviews. I think he, he feels good about the book, uh, although he realizes that there's criticism in there. I, I criticize him on Iran. I criticize him on a whole host of things, not having a chief of staff initially, having too many priorities. Uh, going after too many tough issues at the same time, like the Panama Canal Treaty. How was how old was he, by the way, when he became president? Just he was only fifty. Fifty, yeah. He was young, uh, and and this was a problem when he retired. He was a young man. <laughs> yeah, and right. a question of what to do. Uh, so I think he's very pleased with the book. Although again, he realizes mm-hmm. it's candid and it's honest. And if it if it weren't built, if it was just a whitewash, it wouldn't be taken seriously. So I've tried to put in the positive and the negative, but I think you'll see that the positive sides shine through and give a whole new assessment of him. Now, how is he health-wise? Yeah. It's remarkable. Two and a half years ago, he announced quite dramatically that he had metastatic melanoma. It had spread to his brain. He underwent, and I saw him only a day or two before, a new therapy at Emory University called immunotherapy, which stimulates the immune system to block the spread of cancers rather than chemotherapy to kill good and bad cells. It's the future of mm-hmm. cancer treatment. And about a third of this melanoma, it works, and it's worked for him. He is doing everything. He travels. He speaks. He fishes. Uh, he's com- completely engaged in all of our foreign and domestic uh, issues. Uh, it's really quite remarkable. And now he's in his 72nd year of uh, marriage with Rosalind, who I really? saw yeah. bloom oh. from a shy campaign a wife who could barely speak on the stump to an extremely accomplished first lady. She sat in on cabinet meetings. She was the only first lady except for Eleanor Roosevelt to testify before Congress on her own legislation, mental health, community mental health legislation. So it was beautiful to see her blossom from again, a very shy person, into a real partner. The contrast is so stark that it's almost like they're not on the same planet. I'm talking about Jimmy Carter and Donald Trump. But if you had any reflection based on your experience uh, and knowledge of the Carter presidency to Donald Trump and give him what word of advice or what reflection? Sure. Well, I think a couple of things. First, he's going into a summit with North Korea. The key to Camp David was preparation, preparation, preparation. <laughs> Boy, you talk about a contrast. Yes, but that's Shh. critical. You yes. cannot just go in this for, you know, a handshake. You have to understand the person you're dealing with. You have to understand 
the red lines of the other side and the red lines you want to achieve. You have to really understand the issues. And there's a beautiful story I tell about Camp David. He took the Begin and Sadat, the prime minister of Israel and the president of Egypt. The first Sunday of the 13 agonizing days, he was there to the Camp David, to from Camp David to the Gettysburg battlefield to underscore the fact that they had fought five wars. That was enough. He went through 20 drafts that he personally did of the peace agreement over 13 days. He negotiated separately with Fagan and Sadat and their aides because they were like two scorpions in the bottle. And then in a beautiful touch, the 13th and last day, we were close but not quite there. And Prime Minister Begin said, Mr. President, I can't take any more. I can't make any more concessions. And he was not bluffing. His car was ready. The Al-Al plane was at Dulles. And President Carter saved the day and changed history by knowing enough about them, pouring over CIA reports, that he loved Begin, his eight grandchildren. He got the names of each one, autographed it personally with photographs of himself, Begin and Sadat, at Camp David, walked over to Begin's cabin at Camp David, handed them to him, saw him read each name, his lips quiver, his eyes tearing, and he said to President Carter, Mr. President, I'm putting my bags down. I'll make one last try. Whoa. And 40 years later, that treaty is still, still in effect. Wow. What a powerful story. And what just one powerful story from a great book, President Carter, The White House Years, Stuart Eisenstadt. Thank you so much, Stuart, Bill, for coming in. thank you in. for having me. Yeah, and thanks for, thanks for helping us all by writing this book. It's great to see you. Thank you. When we come back, what's going on back in the uh, real world here, the mon- mon- the mundane world of the United States Congress and the uh, unproductive world of the United States Congress. Matt Fuller covers the Congress for HuffPost. He'll be joining us next year on The Bill Press Show. Stay tuned. Take The Bill Press Show anywhere you go. Download our free podcast, search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes, and catch the highlights from every show. And here we are now, uh, Thursday, June 7, wrapping up here on a Thursday with all the news of the day. It is the uh, Bill Press Show, and we are, as every day, coming to you from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, and our studio on Capitol Hill, where we're brought to you today by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, as good men and women of the Teamsters Union. Uh, all across this land, we all live better because of their good work under the leadership of President Jim Hoffa. Uh, check out their website at teamster.org. Thank them for the good work and their support of the uh, program. Uh, And with uh, Congress back in town and a lot going on, we welcome back to the program uh, our good friend uh, from HuffPost, Matt Fuller. Hello, Matt. Good to see you. Good to see you. Thanks for coming in. Uh, We have not had a chance yet. Um, (laughs) I know. Thanks for making it, Matt. We promised Matt Fuller uh, he was going to be here. Uh, We promised you he was going to be here yesterday. Promises were made. Mistakes were made. Mistakes were made. Sometimes a metro, it just takes a long time, you know. To, that's the issue. Yeah, I that's think. the issue. I, the red line, you know, people have on been fire, known, basically. People have been known, you know, to get on the uh, metro and this. Will Never they ever off. come back? Will they ever return? Will they the ever Bermuda return? The triangle of trains. Yeah. I just want to say, uh, yeah. for the record, Matt's shame and remorse uh, tastes pretty good because he brought us some apology donuts. Ooh. Yeah. And, As is customary and, and healthy, you know. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And? Oh, did you not get any? <laughs> uh, no, no. I see There's a toasted coconut with your name on it. I see on everybody right else eating donuts pretty damn but good. me. I'm pretty right. damn good. Uh, so I'm glad you're here because we haven't had a chance to talk about my favorite story of the day yet, 
which I found to be a, just a bombshell of a. a There's so many that it could be right now. I know. I'm, I know. I'm you so excited to hear it. You don't know where I'm going, <laughs> okay. do you? Okay. No. Okay. So many different angles. Uh, do you want to go lunch today to IHOP? Oh, Did you hear? <laughs> of course. IHOP is changing its name. I, I mean, it, how can I, they go from IHOP to IHOP? Well, how could, it, how could it not be B? breakfast, though? How is that not like they're playing coy on Twitter with this? I've seen that like, yeah. some guy was like, "It's breakfast," and they're like, "Nice try, keep guessing." And it's yeah. like that's not a denial. I have, I've, you know, I've so watched this White House. They're taking everybody lessons. is wondering what the beast. First of all, if they're really going to do it, I thought it was a joke that somebody was. Just, <laughs> but they, I have put this out. They're going to change their name, right? Yes. So what's the B for? I mean, I, as a, I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a truther on breakfast. I'm sticking with that. I just, It'll be breakfast. It'll be breakfast. Could be now, bro- Bill. Wait, it could be broccoli. Bill could be Bill Press. <laughs> could be it Bill could Press. Be, it could I be. Hop a it could be Beats. Could be Beats. <laughs> you beats, bears, International House Galactica. Uh, th- think about it. Yeah. Yeah. Inter- Inter- International House of Bill. You, broccoli, you, bacon, you bacon. Made, you made a, a, a very embarrassing confession in our pre-show meeting where you talked about how you used to go and eat at IHOP for like lunch and dinner. I used to eat at lunch. No, no I never no. said dinner. Lunch. Or lunch. In, That's in a no for West me, Hollywood, right on Santa Monica Boulevard, <laughs> I'd go for lunch. You and can't eat the you can't eat the lunch or dinner food at IHOP. It's pure. You got to eat just the breakfast. I used to have lunch there. You oh. just like would. I, I forget know what, what I used like to chicken have. Chicken tenders or what? what I forget what do. I used to have, but I do remember that uh, the waiter at the IHOP uh, on um, Santa Monica Boulevard in West Hollywood, his name was Jesus. <laughs> Not I used Jesus. to say I never. I knew Jesus was coming back. I never thought Jesus would come back yeah. as a waiter at IHOP. Yeah, there you go. Or there IHOP. He <laughs> there he was. IHOP. But it is a breakfast place, basically. It's but, a breakfast, but yeah. not exclusively. They don't well, close at ten thirty or eleven o'clock. You could eat dinner at an IHOP and get like a pot roast or something, but I. Do- <laughs> Peter Ogburn's Rules of the Road, folks, <laughs> don't recommend it. <laughs> it's going to be a letdown. But isn't this just like, what, what was that, Coke, real Coke or whatever was it? New Coke. New Coke. It's New Coke, such basically. a total bomb. Who's going to say IHOB? <laughs> yeah. Nobody. There's, a, there's not a really rhythm to that one. <laughs> no. Know? But even going from International House of Pancakes to IHOP. Now, that I thought was a brilliant strategy. Sure. R- yeah. Right? Sure. Yeah. And that pancake out of there, you know? <laughs> this is like uh, Uno's Pizzeria, right? Uno's Pizzeria was like Uno's Bar and Grill. Now she's like Uno's. They, you know, they don't want to be known just for the pizza. Hey, man, MTV, my time is valuable. Let's shorten things up. Let's keep it moving, all right? Let's keep it moving. Uh, uh, I don't know. I just don't know. That'll where do it for us today. Uh, <laughs> well, Matt, thanks for coming. I don't know where this I don't know where this is going. I have a lot of thoughts on this, so I don't... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right, let's talk about something that is happening today. Uh, that uh, there is has been this discharge position circulating, um, signed by almost all the almost all the Democrats. Yeah, <coughs> still one holdout. And I think he's signing today. Uh, today, Cuellar, Henry Cuellar. Yeah. All right, well, that will get us to two sixteen. Yeah. Uh, Congressman John Garmendi was in earlier saying, you know, when you look at that two sixteen, you have to realize there could be additions, there also could be subtractions. So Paul Ryan doesn't want this vote on the Dreamers. What's and he's had this big meeting today of the Republican caucus, right. basically to say, let's not do this, let's do this. 
Yeah. So tell I mean, us what's happening. Well, they've they've been holding dangling this meeting out there for a couple of weeks now. This big freewheeling two or three hour closed door meeting with members starts in about thirty minutes here. Um, and I think that they've been able to prevent the two hundred eighteen signatures on the discharge petition thus far because they've had this meeting and they, and Ryan and leadership yeah, yeah. have always said, well, wh- why don't you wait for the meeting? You know, maybe we'll have something to present to the conference, a Republican alternative bill. And the idea has always been, we can if we can come up with a bill that Republicans like, that 218 Republicans would sign, um, that's far preferable to this idea of 25, 26 Republicans signing on with every Democrat and, and forcing through this discharge petition. Uh, not everyone agrees with that in the Republican conference. And, and frankly, uh, that's part of the reason why... Um, you have a lot of these holdouts on the Republican side. A lot of the conservatives think it's much more preferable to make those 25, 26 guys vote yes, sure, whatever, do your thing. And then the rest of the Republican conference, you know, keeps their virtue. I mean, literally, Steve King said that to me yesterday, that oh, uh, yeah. he wants to keep their virtue by not voting <laughs> on, quote, amnesty. Um, so, and, and, and the other issue is actually coming up with this bill is very difficult <laughs> because um, there's a lot of, I mean, this is, Republicans have been debating immigration for I was decades. Gonna say, they haven't come up with a bill for right. for years and years and years. Right, yeah. right. And th- and there are a lot of tricky issues here. I mean, the, the biggest one being this, quote, special pathway to citizenship or special pathway to legal permanent residence. Um, conservatives think, you know, get back of the line. And, and a lot of these more moderate Republicans here are saying, you know, I've got a lot of immigrants in my district. The idea that they're going to, like, go back to Mexico or Guatemala or wherever uh, and then, like, apply for citizenship through the normal means. Like, that's just – it's just not really a, a feasible uh, solution for them. So coming up with that kind of bill when you're the constraints are maybe we can get 218 Republican votes is basically impossible. And I think leadership has always sort of known that. Um, so they've been just trying to delay this fight as much as possible. Finally, it's here with this two- or three-hour conference meeting – I think after that, that's when I think you might see, unless things go really well or unless they're able to convince people to, again, get off the discharge petition, maybe, you know, they can bribe them in some other way with, mm-hmm. you no, know, we're going to have a more freewheeling immigration debate eventually. But <laughs> Or uh, how about we'll take your chairmanship away from you? Or... Well, that, that's that been a, an idea that I've been asking around about. Um, and, and I actually asked Steve King, do you think that they should be, you know, taking chairmanships or committee assignments? And even he was like, no, that's not what we're supposed to be doing here. So there's, I think that that one still is kind of far off. And and frankly, I think a lot of uh, um, the most conservative Republicans and a lot of, um, you know, or some more InfoWars-y conspiracy theories types would start saying, you know, Paul Ryan actually wants this this sort of DACA bill through. And, and there's maybe some truth to that. I mean, this was an issue that he wanted to address. Um, certainly in issue 2013, Paul Ryan was big on the immigration bill uh, with Mario Diaz-Balart. Um, so, you know... It's an issue that he cares about in some way. Um, he's obviously not signing on to a discharge petition. He controls the floor. Right. Um, but uh, if, you know, like the XM Bank, which was the last thing they did through discharge petition, uh, leadership doesn't want their fingerprints on this, but maybe they could get something through. At the same time, Donald Trump's in the White House. Mitch McConnell's the Senate Majority Leader. This doesn't seem like it's a discharge petition. It's not going anywhere. Right. right. So uh, a lot of this is just pure political posturing. This is 25, 26 Republicans like Jeff Denham in tough seats uh, with tough reelection battles uh, with uh, you know a large undocumented immigrant population or just an immigrant population in, in their their districts who want to signal that I'm a friend of yours I can break from the Republican party I support immigration reform and in some ways that's all they really want from this so 
Um, so if they get the vote, even if the bill doesn't become law, they'll be they'll be they'll be able to use it. Right. Yeah. And they'll be probably pretty satisfied with, yeah. with that yeah. outcome. Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, there are so, there are ways that this gets tricky. It could back themselves in. I mean, obviously, Trump is, you know, any given minute he could switch <laughs> gears and say, no, I want this and pressure a vote. And um, I, I don't know exactly. We don't know exactly what the the um, bill that will come forward is, but it could be very close to one that got 55 votes in the Senate. Things could change there. So th- things could change rapidly. And obviously waiting, you go on record with this vote. Maybe you have a next of another vote, the next Congress. You know, th- these things do can matter. But right now it looks like this is just pure messaging. Does uh, is this is, is one question that's involved in all of this or does this raise the issue of how much juice Paul Ryan has left? Well, it, it, I think it's a, <laughs> it's a funny question because, again, Paul Ryan's leaving. There's this argument right now with um, among a lot of Republicans that he needs to leave. You know, he's a lame duck speaker. Um, and then you have this leadership race between, I, th- I mean, it's a very light leadership race, but a shadow speaker race uh, between, I'd say, Kevin McCarthy and, and Steve Scalise. Steve Scalise and Kevin McCarthy are both angling for this job in some ways, uh, both trying to get to the right of each other a little bit on immigration. I think McCarthy realizes he's not going to quite get to the right of Steve Scalise on that issue. Um, but you have the conservatives who are saying, if this happens, if this discharge petition is, um, you know, successful, this is a failure of leadership. We need to think about new leadership. Um, and, you know, a discharge petition in some ways is a failure of leadership because it's basically an acknowledgement that leadership is blocking a, a, yeah, a priority right. that— And they don't like what the leadership is doing. Right. Um and, I, you know, I, I think there's a pretty valid argument to that. And, but the only thing you could say about is it a failing of leadership? Well, it's a failing of Steve Scalise. It's a failing of Kevin McCarthy. It's a failing of Paul Ryan. Um, a lot of people would also say, well, we tried. I mean, that's m- maybe what part of this this whole um, sort of fruitless endeavor of we're going to come up with a bill. We're going to have this freewheeling conference meeting behind closed doors, and it's going to be great. I mean, they are at least outwardly projecting that, you know, we're trying to get an immigration bill. We're trying to do this. Um, it's just, you know, at the end of the day, this is an issue that they've been addressing for decades and them trying to come up with something in, you know, 24, 48 hours or whatever, that seems really difficult. Right. Um, how do, um, it's just, just been a day, but, um, how do Republicans feel or Democrats that you've talked to about the lay of the land following the primaries on Tuesday night? Yeah, I think, um, I think it's been a little bit mixed reactions. I think people... You know, I, I've talked to a few Republicans about some of this, and, and partly one of my focuses has been how does this affect the discharge petition? Oh, um, yeah. You know, whether guys want to sort of signal that um, they're on board with this. But, you know, California was an interesting an interesting result. I mean, I think, I think you had a lot of guys, you know, for one, Jeff Denham looked like he might be in trouble. He's the leader of this, this um, discharge petition. He's obviously using this to, you know, bolster his campaign re-election odds. Uh, same time, you have someone like David Valadeo, who looked in, you know, in a commanding lead. I'd say um, a, a, a district that I think would be tough for for Democrats um, in, you know, a normal year. It seems at, at this point, but uh, it's also a very even, you know, R plus three. I think district. So it's certainly one that that you know the Democrats want to play in. Certainly one mm-hmm. they want um, Republicans spending money in. But he looked, you know, had a commanding lead over the vote totals there. So 
I think there's a, a little bit of mixed messages. Obviously, with California, there was no lockouts for, for Democrats, and that's a great sign for them. Um, but, yeah, I think a lot of members are individually looking yeah, I, at things. Yeah, I counted up this morning. There are, um, let me get the list here, one, Ten. two, three... Yeah, eight eight districts in California where Republican lockouts, where repu- where um, Democrats were afraid they might have been locked out, or people mm. were afraid they might have been right, right. And and all eight of them, they're Democratic right. and candidates. I, and I up think against. even from the eight, it was like eight that are in play, five that are maybe, and three that are like real battles. Yeah. And they yeah. they right. succeeded in all of them. Yeah, right. So that, that was California. I mean, that was a great night for the DCCC in the, in that sense. Um, uh, and and obviously, if if every district is going to matter here at the very end, then this is, you know, this is big things. And and also, you would, I could say you could say from this too that um, some of the districts that you know I think Democrats were saying that might that's more of an aspirational district, like a Dana Rohrbacher right. district. It, it certainly looked like he might be in trouble in those sorts of places. So yeah, no, it's more of an aspirational district. Hillary Clinton carried Dana Rohrbacher, but on, which I find as a former Democratic chair of California. Knowing almost every district yeah. uh, pretty well, uh, the idea that Rohrbacher's district would be in play and that Hillary Clinton would carry it. No. Same with Daryl Issa's district. Right. This was unheard of right. five years ago or right. six years right. ago. Right. And those districts are obviously changing, too, and, and uh, yeah. you know, the demographics yeah. are around the San Diego, those, that area. But too. every uh, the, both the front page Washington Post, and uh, I haven't seen your front page yet, I must say, this morning. Uh, sorry about that. <laughs> Usually bring it up right away. But, and the uh, New York Times, New York Times headlines uh, make the same point. Voting shores up Democrats' push to retake the House, generally seen as. Yeah, I, I and I think that's a very fair uh, analysis just because, again, there was no lockouts. That was a, a big, you know, point for Democrats on uh, Tuesday night. And um, it's certainly seemed like there are some districts that. Again, might have been more aspirational that they could play in here. So one way that uh, we could help the Republicans win is to keep the Democrats in uh, Washington all summer so they can't go home and campaign. <laughs> that seems to be Mitch McConnell's strategy. Huh? Well, I mean, that's a, it's a, I think this is a pure Mitch McConnell uh, move. It, it, it's just the calculation of there's more Democrats who are up for re-election in the Senate. Um, in the House, that would be, I think, a disastrous play. And I think that Paul Ryan, Kevin McCarthy, those guys understand that um, they're actually more, much more popular. Congress itself is more popular when they're not in session. Um, and yeah, there's so, a, Republicans are defending many more seats in the House. Right. So, so keeping them here would be so a bad Republicans need to get uh, House Republicans need to get out and campaign. Um, right. Mitch McConnell. So will he just keep the Senate here without the House in session? That seems like the the plan. I mean, there's a couple reasons why you might do this. Um, he this might be just him negotiating on appropriations bills and basically saying, uh-huh. you know. Until we pass these bills, no one's going home. Uh, it could be just nominations. I, I, I know that someone had made the point. I, I'd seen that you know do you know does Sherrod Brown's voters care if he's not in town to yeah. vote on right. an ambassador or something? Um, it remains to be seen yeah. at this point. But and what what are they going to get done with the House out? They're right, not going to get. Right. To, they're not going to get anything done. Anything. Yeah. Well, the again, I mean, I, I think Except I'm, maybe some confirmation, maybe right, some judges right, right. or something. I mean, it, it could be the fact that all right, I, he's going to hold them hostage for this, uh, these appropriations bills, and try to do this, these mini buses that they say, basically combining three or four appropriations bills together. Um, you know, if that's the case, I don't think Democrats are going to fold just because they're in like in, in town. If it's just you know nominations. They probably come up with some sort of agreement. This this happens a lot more often than we we know. It happened last year, 
basically they threaten or say we're going to cancel August recess and then they end up giving back weeks. I mean, the Senate, Mitch McConnell said, you know, we're going to cancel August recess or at least a couple weeks of August recess. And they made it to Thursday of the first week. And then it was like, all right, everyone get the hell out of town. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, I, 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 I'm not sure that this is a, a full threat. I think it is more serious than previous years, but um, I, I think it's largely irrelevant to – Okay. You know, it's so funny. Well, we talked about this so much about what they were going to do and how this yeah. could possibly play out, and it really is kind of exactly what we thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. Right? They are they, who we thought they are. They they are who we <laughs> thought they were. Right. And since they are who we thought they are, and uh, they're they're not getting anything done, and and no chance that they'll get anything done. I want to talk to you about a couple of other things too <laughs> that are in the news. Um, and last night at the White House, uh, the president held a uh, there was a dinner. Uh, an iftar dinner where uh, the president actually um, had some good things to say about Islam. Uh, you, you can hear this and see if you hear the sincerity in his voice. In gathering together this evening, we honor a sacred tradition of one of the world's great religions. One of the world's <laughs> great religions, he says. Uh, and he goes on to say, here's what iftar is all about. Iftars mark the coming together of families and friends to celebrate a timeless message of peace, clarity, and love. There is great love. You can really tell he's speaking, he's really speaking from his heart. You know here. when he's reading and when he's talking, right? He, I mean, uh, that's uh, a classic where you can hear that. And he just throws in great love. Yeah, just love. yeah, yeah, yeah. Great yeah. love. A great love. There is right. a great, folks, yeah, there is a great love. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and with this whole, uh, the, uh, the the state dining room full of these Muslim leaders from, uh, from around the country. And then he finished that, and then he said, all right, now all, get out of here. <laughs> get out of this house. <laughs> Didn't you hear about my Muslim ban? <laughs> I mean, how does he, how do they handle that, right? Here's a guy that wants to prevent ban all Muslims from entering the country, and then yeah. he has this dinner at the White House and it, gets up and talks about One of about the world's women. great religions. One of the world's great, great, great religions. Yeah. Yeah. Great love. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a band name. Um, <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, I, it, it always amazes me how foreign leaders grade Trump on a curve, that they treat him with these sort of kid gloves that, you know, and, and maybe it's, um, there's just, who, who the hell knows what the guy's going to do? So it's just like, you got to tread carefully here. Yeah. Um, but, I, 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 just, well, I can't. Okay. So now talk about a wild card. On the other side of the world, um, Rudy Giuliani popped up yesterday uh, in Tel Aviv. Uh, now, he's he's been hired by the president to deal with the Mueller investigation. I think he's doing a bad enough job there. No, this is the world's greatest lawyer. I think. The world's greatest lawyer. <laughs> I think this guy the world's greatest lawyer. Legal mind. I mean, oh, yeah. unbelievable. I'm not a yeah. coffee cup. It's got to so, be true. Uh, <laughs> so he gets out of his uh, out of his realm here a little bit. Not talking about uh, Mueller. We'll get back to that in a second. But he, he dips into foreign policy, and he's asked about the summit. And how did it happen that the summit, which was on but then canceled, is now back on again? Here's Rudy's take. Well, Kim Jong-un got back on his hands and knees and begged for it, which is exactly the position you want to put him in. <laughs> Holy yep, cow. That's where we want him, on his hands and knees. Look at that. I'm yeah. sure that won't backfire at all. No, no, that. right. <clears throat> little, little rocket man crawling <laughs> on his hands and knees. That's where we want him. Yeah. Just when they're trying to smooth everything over and... Even Donald Trump is now saying what a great leader he is. It, I mean, it, 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 <laughs> we lose sight of it because Donald Trump is president, but Rudy Giuliani was also almost president. Like, yeah, <laughs> I mean, that yeah. was a 
Yeah. That was a thing. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty <laughs> scary. So Rudy spent most of his time yesterday talking about Stormy Daniels and how could Donald Trump be attracted by it? It doesn't make sense. Be attracted by somebody like Stormy Daniels, Rudy says? When you look at Stormy Daniels, uh, I know Donald Trump and Let's look, at his, look at his three wives, right? <laughs> Beautiful women, classy women, women of great substance. Stormy Daniels? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, you can hear was, the room, you, right? The room goes like, what is yeah. going on here? <laughs> right. yeah, yeah, and yeah. then he says, here, you cannot respect this woman after all, Rudy. I'm sorry, I don't respect a porn star the way I respect <laughs> a career woman or a woman of substance or a woman who has great respect for herself as a woman and as a person and isn't going to sell her body for sexual exploitation. <laughs> He said, during the fact that Donald Trump paid her $130,000 not to talk about the affair right, that they had. Right. And Rudy is the one who told us that Donald Trump, yes, okayed the payment and made the payment himself. Unbelievable. Love Rudy. Okay. Yeah. As you say, one of the great legal minds <laughs> of all time. Yeah. <laughs> the greatest, I think. Great mind. Well, Donald Trump would say that. Boy, the two of them deserve each other. I don't know. Hey, thanks for playing along. Matt Fuller, thanks for coming in. <laughs> Thank you. All right, thanks for the donuts. Yeah. Hey, have a great day, folks. We'll it's see you back here tomorrow. Show.